Well, it feels a little cozy this morning. I don't know if it's just July, it's the two-stool worship set up here. I almost a little tempted to pull up a stool and preach this morning. I'm not quite there yet, though. I'm a little too restless when I'm preaching to do that. So, but thanks for pulling up a chair and joining us this morning as we gather for Worship Church. Well, this morning we're going to complete our mini-series on the church. And the title of my message today is All My Delight. All My Delight. And our text this morning, if you turn to it, is found in Psalm 16. So please turn there now in your Bibles. Psalm chapter 16. I'm going to read the entire psalm this morning, although we're going to be centering it upon verse 3. But I want you to hear verse 3 in its entire context this morning. So I'm going to read the entire chapter, all 11 verses, and you can follow along. The word of God to us this morning, church. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Lord, oh, our minds are prone to drift. Our hearts can so easily gravitate toward the things of this world. So Lord, we're asking this morning that you would recalibrate us, so to speak, that you would arrest our attention, that you would direct our gaze, and that you would delight and satisfy our souls this morning. So Lord, would you do that work, even now, as your word is preached. May we find delight in you, and this delight in one another. Oh Lord, anoint, I ask, the preaching of your word this morning. I pray. Amen. Well, just this past week, I picked up a book of mine from Donald Whitney entitled 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. Over the years, I have found this book to be quite helpful. Much as an annual physical examination or a trip to the doctor is helpful. Mind you, helpful, not always pleasant. Reading this book sometimes is 
kind of like stepping on the scale and being weighed at the doctor's office or having your blood pressure taken. Sometimes the results are encouraging. Other times, not quite so encouraging. But they're always revealing. And there's one question to diagnose my spiritual health that has been particularly helpful. It's the open your mouth wide, insert tongue depressor, say ah question, all right? Always forget that one's coming. It's a simple procedure, but it gives the doctor a look of what's happening inside. And so does this question. It helps us see what is inside. What is inside of us? And it's this question. Do you delight in the bride of Christ? That is, do you delight in the church? Well, this morning, I want to rephrase that question slightly to help you and me diagnose our personal spiritual health. So here's the question for us, slightly rephrased. Do you delight in God's people, the church? Do you delight in God's people, the church? In phrasing the question as such, I'm not asking this. I'm not asking, do you delight in the church as a theological concept or doctrine. You know, here at Paul and Vista, we do speak a lot about having a passion for the church, having a passion for the local church. And that's good and right, isn't it? But if we're not careful, I think sometimes we can love the idea of the church more than the people themselves who comprise the church, who are the church. We can love this notion of Christ body, the church, of the Christ, of the church, victorious and triumphant. Sometimes we can do so, more so, than the people themselves. To adapt an old adage, hey, I love the church, it's just the people I can't stand. Now, maybe you don't say that, or you don't think that per se, but such a division can subtly begin to occur in our minds. Neither am I asking this morning, do you delight in the church universal, in Christians worldwide? I I hope you do. But I'm not asking, do you delight in those Christian personalities that you may see on TV and know well? I'm not asking, do you delight in those compelling individuals, Christians that you may read about in a magazine or on the internet? I'm not asking, do you delight in the historical heroes of the faith whom you may admire. No. I'm speaking primarily about those seated next to you. Yeah, those to your right, those to your left, those in front of you, and those behind you. Do you delight in them? Do you delight not just in those Christians out there or those Christians back then. But do you delight in those right here whom you were joined with? Members of Paul Vista. Or in the words of the psalmist, do you delight in the saints who are in the land? You see, apparently, King David did. And we know from Scripture, King David was a, well, very imperfect man. Yet he's described as a man after God's own heart. 
It's apparent from David's many psalms, which are poems, songs, that God had his heart. But there's something else that possessed David's heart as a result of his love for God. It was the people of God. David had a passion for the people of God. We read in Psalm 16, verse 3, David speaking, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. If the driving diagnostic question this morning is this, do you delight in God's people, the church? I want to look at two points this morning. Number one, the dual nature or object of our delight. I'm going to explain this in a moment as we go through a little bit of Psalm 16. But I have a second point as well, and it's this. When I don't delight, I want to be, I want to be real this morning. I want to be honest. But I want to give you hope this morning. If you're not so encouraged by your response to my question, Let's look first at the dual nature of our delight, point one. In Psalm 16, David is apparently feeling a little threatened, whether it be maybe the enemies of the Lord, verse 4, maybe his own human sickness or frailty, which he may be referred to in verse 10. He's asking God to preserve and protect him. But catch this. What David is doing in the psalm is he's expressing confidence in the Lord. David is expressing his contentment in the Lord. And that neatly summarizes this Psalm 16. He begins by saying, I have no good apart from you. He's speaking about unto the Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's quite a statement. No good. Nothing, nada, no one, not a, no one, apart from you, O Lord. But then look what we read about in the next verse. It's a statement in verse 3, which at first blush seems, I don't know, a little out of place, a little unexpected, maybe even a little contradictory. He says this, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. David has just finished singing, I have no good apart from you, O Lord. And then in the very next breath, he is singing about the saints, in whom is all his delight. In one sense, he's saying, God, in you and you alone, I delight. In the next verse, he's saying, but in the saints, I find all my delight. What's going on here? Well, apparently, these excellent ones or saints, are part of the goodness of God, which David is referring to and recounting. So church, please make this connection with me. Note that when David is speaking about taking refuge and delight in God, he is also taking comfort and delight in God's people. I find that so instructive. To delight in God's goodness is also to delight and find joy in God's people. They go hand in hand. It's a dual nature of our delight. Proper delight in God will and should lead us to delight in those who belong to him. 
in this psalm, David is taking inventory of the goodness of God. And he's counting all his benefits, not the least or which are the saints who are in the land. Who are these saints that David is delighting in? Who are these excellent ones? I think the answer is given by way of contrast with verse 4 of Psalm 16, where we read, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In other words, the saints are those Israelites. It's those people who are not idolaters, those who are faithful to his Lord. But this term saints should be pretty familiar to us, right? As New Covenant, New Testament believers, Paul refers to Christians as saints in almost every letter that he writes. We encounter that in the book of Ephesians, which we studied this last year. Saints don't refer to perfect people. Neither is saints some posthumous designation given by the church for those who have long since ceased. No. This term is repeatedly used in the New Testament and by David here, not to refer to the heroes of faith who have died and gone to heaven, but those who are in the land. David is talking about living flesh and blood people. Friends, today when we speak about saints, we're talking about ordinary people, people who are in the church, followers of Jesus Christ. What makes you, what makes me, what makes any person a saint or literally a holy one? It's this. It's the supernatural indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's his indwelling presence in a believer's life. And that describes every single Christian here this morning. How could David say in a psalm, of the saints, I find all my delight. Not, not some, but he says, all my delight. Really, David? All? Well, I believe the clue is found in the phrase, excellent ones. It could also be translated as it is in the New American Standard Version, majestic ones. To our ears, that sounds a little over the top, doesn't it? Referring to saints, you and me, as excellent ones, it's... It's like referring to, Kevin, how, is, how are you doing? Oh, majestic one. And oh, excellent wife, Claudia. I feel like I'm in a Shakespeare novel or something, you know? It doesn't quite fit to our ears, does it? But David saw something in the saints that we can often miss. I do not believe David was just delighting in something. He wasn't delighting just in their intrinsic nobility or glory something inherent to themselves. I believe David was delighting in something greater. In fact, he was delighting in someone greater. I believe David could call them excellent, glorious, majestic ones because these were people that belonged to God. These were people who were defined by God, the majestic one. These were the saints who reflected God and his goodness and grace to David. Yes, even in time of need. When he was around them, 
David experienced God. He saw the work of God. He saw the reflection of God in them as they followed his same Lord and Master. And it brought David delight. It brought David encouragement. Yes, and even content, contentment, excuse me, in the middle of his struggles. As I was preparing this message this week, I was asking myself the question, what causes me to delight? Well, as Al referenced in his sermon a couple weeks ago, I recently took my son CJ for a backpacking, mountain-climbing trip to the Colorado Rockies. But CJ and I weren't alone. I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. Well, I'm stupid enough to do a lot of really dumb physical stunts, but I'm not that stupid. For I brought along an airborne army ranger, my friend Raphael Gavilan and his junior ranger, Elias. Man, we were quite a sight. Raphael had his army boots, camouflage pants. He had a large knife at his side. And his other hip he had? Bear mace. I don't know what bear mace. I think it's kind of like pepper spray for bears. I'm not sure what it is. But man, naively, so or not, I felt pretty safe, you know, around Raphael. But until I talked, we talked to the park rangers. We were getting our backcountry permit to do wilderness camping in the Rocky Mountain National Park, and they were giving us a little briefing, and the ranger was saying, well, we haven't had any bear spottings lately, but there has been a spotting of a mountain lion in the area where you're camping. But she said it kind of nonchalantly and just moved on. And I'm thinking, is that a good trade-off? Okay, no bear, but we have a mountain lion stalking our campground, okay? I wasn't sure how to interpret that. But anyway, the good news is we did not see any mountain lions on our adventure. But we did see the summit of what is called Mount Ida. We climbed its peak of nearly 13,000 feet. And when we made it to the top, my jaw dropped. The view, the vista, the grandeur, the majesty. We were on the spine or the ridge of the mountains, which is called the Continental Divide. What that means is this. On that ridge where we were standing, all the rain that falls to the east of this ridge eventually drains into the Atlantic Ocean. All the rain that falls to the west of this ridge eventually drains into the Pacific Ocean. In other words, from our vantage point, we were on top of the world. But you know what? The view at that moment did not render me speechless. It was quite the opposite. I was just like, this is stunning. This is amazing. This, oh, is invigorating. I I couldn't stop. My delight factor was off the charts. To quote C.S. Lewis from his book, Reflection on the Psalms, he says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until expressed. I think that's what's going on in this psalm. As David is verbalizing, singing, and completing his delight. It's what was happening to me on that mountaintop. 
But it wasn't just the mountains, you see, that I was delighting in. And it wasn't just the saints that David was delighting in as we read the psalm. Please catch this. See, I was delighting in the creator who made the mountains. The magnificence, the creativity, creativity, the power, the artistry, the vastness of our God who made those mountains. What I was seeing in those mountains, what we were seeing, was the work of God. That's why David could say of the saints, majestic ones or excellent ones. He saw God in the saints. In a similar way, I saw God's handiwork in those mountains. Just as we as often can say we can call mountains majestic, how much more can we call saints majestic? Those who have been made in God's image and those who are being restored to God's image. See, a lot of people can go up to the mountaintop, can't they? They can take in the beautiful scenery. But unless they're a Christian, unless they know the one who designed and spoke forth those mountains, oh, they can't delight. They can't delight as I delighted, as we delighted on that day. You see, delighting in God and delighting in his work, particularly his people, go hand in hand. We delight in God's people because we see God in them. Catch that? But I believe there's also a second reason that we are to delight in God's people, the saints. And it's something maybe, I would suggest, maybe seldom of us, seldom, we seldom contemplate. Or maybe even scarcely believe. It's this. We delight in God's people because he is delighting in us. You see, King David is not just a model for us in the scripture. He's also what is called a type, a Christ type. King David pointed forward to the anti-type, to the king of kings to come, to the one who would come in David's line and lineage, the promised seed and savior, Jesus Christ, the one who I believe along with the father would one day delight and sing over us. Jesus Christ surrendered on a cruel wooden cross for the sins of his people, the church. He died for the saints. He has resurrected, and now he is reigning, and he's ruling, and he's delighting over us. What's prophesied in Zephaniah is true, For the true Israel, that is the church. Listen to God's disposition towards us as we see in Zephaniah chapter 3, 14 and following. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And then we go, put it up there, verse 17 of Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 
church, that is what we just sang about this morning. Do you believe it? Or do you feel a little uncomfortable with that thought? Sometimes, I do. If our focus is primarily on sin or our shortcomings and not on God and His grace, you may struggle to find this statement credible, to believe it. I want to read a comment from the ESV Study Bible on this text in Zephaniah. We read the following. This verse remarkably adds that God himself will rejoice over you with gladness, indicating that when God's people seek him and follow him and rejoice in him and trust him, then God personally delights in them. Now catch this. This is not an aloof, emotionless contentment, but it bursts forth in joyful, divine celebration. He will exalt over you with loud singing. As you delight and follow God, he is personally delighting over you. Friends, let that settle in. Let it settle in. And let this settle in as well. God is also delighting in that person next to you who is also rejoicing in him. That person that you may be in conflict with. That person who annoys you a little bit. That person whom you cannot relate to. And truth be known, that person you may just find a little dull or boring. God is rejoicing over them. And that leads to the next point, point two. When delight is difficult. When delight is difficult. You see, here's the issue. Gritty resolve or determination to delight doesn't work, does it? Okay, I hear what you're saying, Corey. Yeah, I'm just going to delight in that person. I'm just going to do it. Doesn't work. Why? Because delight is a hard issue. It's a hard issue. As we spoke about in our first point, delighting in God is intimately connected with delighting in his saints. It's what we see in Psalm 16. Thus, if your heart isn't delighting in God, it's safe to say that you're not delighting in the saints. At least on the way the Bible speaks of delight. I mean, you may, you know, enjoy hanging around them, being around them. You may even call the saints your friends. You may even serve them. But there's no true delight. The reality is this. If you are delight, if you're not delighting in God, if you're not finding joy in God above all else and valuing him above all else, you are delighting in someone or something else. In the words of Psalm 16, verse 4, you are running after another God. And the end result, as we see there in verse 4, is sorrow, not delight. You may surround yourself with saints, but in the end, you're just going to use them if they can help you get what you want. You will run over them 
if they're in your way of what you want. You will reject or despise them if they don't give you what you want. But you will not delight in the saints. If this is rather new to you this morning, if you've never really delighted in God's people, the church, if the saints have lost their luster, so to speak, I do want to encourage you this morning with this one thought. In Christ, you have a beautiful inheritance to discover or perhaps to rediscover in Christ. That inheritance is God and his people. David puts it this way in verse 5 of Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is this beautiful inheritance that David is referring to? Well, most plainly, it's the Lord whom David is extolling as his portion, as his sustenance in verse 5. But when he says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, I can't help but believe that the psalmist is recognizing God's providential ordering of his life down to the very saints who were in the land, the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If God is your inheritance, so are his people. And this is the promise, and this is the hope that God offers to us to content and to delight our soul. I'm not sure how you got to Miami. Some of you were definitely born here. Others of you came here because of a job or because of family needs. I'm not sure how you came to Palm Vista. Maybe it was the recommendation of a friend. Maybe it was an internet search. Maybe it was a drive-by sighting because you live nearby. But God has providentially ordered your steps down to the very people, God's people, in your lives. The very saints that you see when you walk in that hallway and corridor. The very saints that happen to be in your home group. The very saints who live close by. Perhaps to live in Miami or to become part of Palm Vista has meant saying goodbye to family. Or for some of you, embracing Christ has meant being ostracized from your family, even those who live nearby. If that is the case, Christ has some stunning words for you. It's a promise. It's an inheritance. It's the saints. And Christ puts it this way in Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, 
eternal life. What is this inheritance that Christ is speaking of? This promise that he's holding out to those who follow him. It's houses, it's brothers, it's sisters, it's mothers, it's children, it's lands, it's spiritual family. It's the saints. It's me and it's you. It's those next to you. Christ isn't just talking about the life to come. He's talking about what you will receive now in this life. One hundred fold. It's the saints. It's the church, my friends. I love the way Randy Alcorn explains this passage and promise. I can't improve upon it, so I'll just read it. Christ was saying that those who would follow him in leaving behind what was theirs would become part of the larger family of faith where relationships are deep and possessions are freely shared. Everywhere the apostles went, they would find homes that were theirs for as long as they wished to stay, meals prepared from the harvest of the fields freely shared with them. They would have brothers and sisters to fellowship with, parents to give them wisdom and guidance and love, and children who would learn at their feet and whom they would guide into Christ-likeness. This same rich reservoir of relationships and possessions is available today to all who will follow the Lord. I've experienced it myself, and likely you have too. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced such family, such saints? And have you learned to delight in them? It's true. This is also true. It's not always easy to delight in family, is it? Delighting doesn't mean that we won't have conflict with the saints or that we will not battle to love them at times, just as we battle to love our very own physical, biological family. But delighting does mean this, that we learn to delight in God and His providential ordering of our lives, to see where He has placed us as part of His sovereign wisdom and care for you. Yes, for you personally. Down to the very spiritual family, the very brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and children that God has given you. As we learned in the book of Ephesians, we have been adopted into God's family. This reason alone is enough for unceasing praise and delight. But you know what? It's very easy to think of and conceive of our adoption solely in vertical terms. In other words, to view our adoption simply as something that involved God and me, myself. But God is not like the Chinese government. He does not have a one-child policy. God didn't just adopt you. It's his purpose and will to adopt the sick, the disabled, the orphans, 
from every nation, every tribe, every orphanage. And it's called the church. And you know what? It is marvelous. It is marvelous in his eyes. It is mar- is it marvelous in yours? Oh. As most of you know, we adopted our daughter Lana from Russia this past March. We chose her to be our daughter. She didn't choose us. Neither did she choose her siblings. And you know what else? Her siblings did not choose her either. When we first received Lana into our family, she talked differently, laughed differently, cried differently, looked differently, and smelled differently. And that's mostly still true today, as cute as she is to us. What an unparalleled joy to see our children not only embrace Lana, our daughter, but to delight in her, and that they do. But their delight hasn't come without sacrifice. Having a three-year-old who has never lived in a home, who has never known a mommy or a daddy, has meant that we can't do things the same way we used to do as family. She is needy. She can't be left alone without harming herself or perhaps others. Our children have also had to learn to share mommy and daddy with Lana. And it hasn't always been easy. Hangout time, the smidgen household looks a little different with a three-year-old who only has one gear. That's fourth gear. No, fifth gear, okay? Who has not yet discovered the brake pedal in her newfound freedom. Are we exhausted? Yes. But Lana is family, and she is our delight. Undoubtedly, of all the many amazing memories that we have chronicled this past year, one stands right there near the top. It was our arrival into Miami International Airport, Concourse E, the night Lana set foot in the U.S. for the first time, her homecoming. Who was there to greet us at the airport? It wasn't just our physical family. It was a number of you. It was our spiritual family. Oh, the banners, the smiles, the cheers, and the tears will never be forgotten in the support and love and care of you has not ceased. Why all this talk about delighting in the saints? Why did I choose this topic in our miniseries? Well, first of all, I did it for myself, to renew my mind, to lift my eyes in the midst of a challenging yet wonderful season as a family, to remember what is most important, delighting in God. That's delighting in his saints. But I also did it with this in mind. I also did it with the future in mind, with Palm Vista in mind. Church, we're trusting God to bring new people through our doors in this coming year. People who don't look like us, who don't smell like us, who don't have the same background as us, people who do not speak like us, who don't have the Christianese or Christian lingo down. 
but people, saints, whom God, in his sovereign grace, has purposed to join to Paul Vista and to himself. Sonia came up with a word this morning during worship, John chapter 10. It speaks of Christ, our shepherd, saying, I have other sheep who are not of this fold yet to bring in. Certainly that speaks to the Gentiles, but I believe it also applies to us this morning as well. There are other sheep he has not yet brought into the flock, or I should say other saints who he has not yet brought into the family. Will you open your hearts and delight in them as you've delighted in our daughter Lana? You're going to have to share us pastors and your friends with them. It will mean making space in your heart for them, making space in your home groups for them, making space in your schedules for them. It will mean delighting in them, yes, even in their many differences, for the glory of God. But church, we don't have to wait for then. Oh, because we have now. Are you delighting now in the saints with which God has joined you? What does your heart say? What does your budgeting of time or finances say? What does your hospitality say? What does your participation in the local church say? If you find yourself tired of the saints, a little apathetic, unmoved, you don't have to stay there. You can't. Change begins with delighting yourself in the Lord. Delighting in the Lord who has providentially placed you right here in Miami at Palm Vista that you may say, as in verse 5, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Secondly, change means, perhaps, confessing. To steal a word and a phrase, I believe it's from John Piper, confessing a culpable coldness of heart that you may have towards the saints. Thirdly, change means praying earnestly. We read in Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4, these words. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. See the imperative? Delight. It's also a promise. He will give you the desires of your heart, including a delight for the saints. Pray. Fourthly, change also involves doing that which may rekindle that delight. Act according to where you want your heart to be. Go ahead. Initiate with a saint today. Serve a saint today. Even if your delight is dim, in prayerful anticipation that that delight will dawn and return. And for those who are delighting in the saints, I want you to hear this. There are many here. Thank you. Thank you for leading the way. This is what I ask. Keep stoking that delight. Go ahead. Tell someone, even this morning, 
how much they mean to you. Tell of your delight. Tell it to God and tell it to one another. Remember, delight is completed in expressing it, just as the psalmist modeled, just as I experienced on that mountaintop. Delight is contagious. Go infect someone today. Why? That we might say, as for the saints of Palm Vista Community Church, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Let's pray. Have the worship duo come up. Oh, dear Lord, I realize this morning that we cannot just stand or sit here and somehow conjure up and muster delight in our hearts. We confess that this is a work that ultimately only you can do. But Lord, we're asking this morning that you would do just that, that you would stoke delight in us as we focus our eyes upon you, the one who delights in us. So Lord, I pray this morning that we would believe that for those who are following Christ, rejoicing in you, that you are delighting in us. And not just that, you're delighting in that person next to us. So Lord, oh, there is delight to go around this morning. So Lord, focus now. Our gaze upon you. Teach us of what it means to delight in you and to delight in those with whom you've joined us with. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let us stand.